And I'm going to have to edit that and reverse it out because I did them in backwards order. Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Obsessed episode 264 is recorded live November 12th, 2015. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the very blustery side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Doing very well and wet, so I'm good. Wet. Now, when you say wet, you got to dive in today. Well, I was outside in the in the in the rain. <laughs> now, did you get was that those photos that you had on Facebook? Were those ones that you had just done today? Yeah, I just went out there when I got back from. Uh, I went to the Air Zoo today. Spent got half the day out there and came back and heard it was you know really nasty. Saw a couple of videos people did. I had to go out there and check out the river. And uh, it was pretty nice. I mean, we had surfers out there. In the river? No, no. In, uh, in the river was flowing backwards. Oh, oh, because of the wind blowing in? Yep, until it hit the Whirlpool Basin. But you're talking six, seven-foot swell. Wow. Meaning when it got towards the Coast Guard Station, it was overflowing the top, you know, the walkway? Yeah. It was coming up over the top. Freaking wow. awesome. <laughs> I, I, I think if you have a house with a basement there, you might not think the same thing. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> so people who don't know what we're talking about is on St. Joe, Michigan, and almost anybody who likes lighthouse photos has seen a picture of the St. Joe Pier. It's uh, got a big lighthouse and a smaller lighthouse and a raised catwalk. And a lot of times in the winter, the ice will build up on the catwalk in the lighthouse, and you have some nice photos. Uh, we've got a pier that was built by the was it the Army Corps of Engineers. Yep. And what happens, you get wind blowing just the right way. It funnels waves down through between the piers and it builds. And then you've got the river who's rushing downstream trying to get out. That makes for some interesting confluence, I guess would be the term. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room right now. Tonight it's just Wheaton Diver, and we also apologized to everybody with the audio last week. We, we fought. I listened to it, and it, it's it doesn't sound as bad as I thought it would, but it's still not good enough. We're going to be working on the issue. Hopefully tonight, I think we have the microphones problems worked out thanks to Microsoft, Skype, Macintosh, and my microphone all fighting. But it looks like, you know, knock on wood, that the uh, microphone's not going to be thrashing. I'm still running into problems with routing audio, so we're using our backup method, which is okay, but still not as good as our normal audio. Uh, also, next week, we won't be having a podcast. I'm traveling for work, and I bet by the following week, we'll have that other issue already worked. We'll have that one worked out. But let's see what we have up on the docket for articles. Uh, I'm, I I didn't edit like I normally do, so for what I do, I look at my notes, and it's last year, last week's. Uh, let's see. What's, what's one that looks good? Because these are all out of order. Normally, whether you can tell or not, I sort the articles to have some sort of flow, but... Uh, how about let's let's start with the Edmunds Fitzgerald article. Very appropriate. Yeah, we talked about a little bit of storm. The gales of November, which was the tenth, actually, or the sinking of the Fitzgerald, as I recollect. Yeah. So this one, let's see. Veteran diver Terence Tysall has seen the looming hull of the Edmunds Fitzgerald with his own eyes. He said it reminded me of an icebreaker cutting through large blocks of mud and clay. He said that he's a Florida diving instructor who's one of two people ever to dive the wreck of the Fitzgerald. And I think we talked about this last week, Nick. I, don't, I can't remember if we were on the show or if we talked afterwards. No, I think it was on the show we talked about that. Yep. It was September 1st, 1995. Tysol and fellow diver Mike Z of Chicago became the first and only people to ever scuba dive on the Fitzgerald. The Deepwater Expedition landed the men in the technical diving history books in hot water with some of the lost crew members' families who considered the wreck a grave site. The Fitzgerald, best known for the Great Lakes shipwreck, sank suddenly in Gale, November 10, 1975. All 29 men aboard died, and their bodies are entombed inside the wreck, 530 feet under the surface. Okay, before I go any farther, 
why do we have this affinity with shipwrecks that people die on that we think that there's somehow uh, some sort of place that can't be breached? If, if, I re- if I die in a car, my car goes smashing into the pillar underneath the highway, we don't cordon that off and leave my car there and then say nobody can go and touch it. What, what's the difference between that and a boat? Generally speaking, they're talking about when to have bodies on board. Well, if your body was left in the car and went to the junkyard, that's what I think the equivalent is. I wouldn't want you messing with the car or your body. So they're saying that because we didn't recover the bodies, that it should be left alone. At the tomb, yeah. So is there a time limit? Do we say, now is it 80 years, 50 years? At what point does that no longer become a tomb? Because we're diving on wrecks where they never recovered all the bodies. Correct, but most of the wrecks we're diving on, you're talking 100 years old and there is nobody. Well, there's nobody to be upset. They can't be upset with us. But we know the bodies aren't there because they're either buried under the surface and unless we disturb it, we would never find them, or they've long since drifted in shore someplace else. And deteriorated and gone. Yeah. But I think like the submarines, the crew is probably on board, mummified. Uh, a lot of the cargo ships and troop ships, uh, there's probably bodies and remains inside. And from that aspect, it's like disturbing a burial site or an Indian mound. I'm sure there's nothing left or very little left. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I mean, I can see you know, if you're still alive, it, it might be a sore subject, but I'm, I'm not quite getting it. And maybe that's just me. Uh, Tysol called driving, diving the ship one of the most significant accomplishments in his lengthy career, which includes more than 8,000 dives for the U.S. Navy, NS, and I said, I was going to say NSA, NASA, NOAA, and other organizations. CNZ set a record for the deepest scuba dive on the Great Lakes and the deepest scuba dive on a shipwreck. Prior to that, a handful of expeditions, Jacques Cousteau in 1980 among them, all involved heavy dive suits, remotely operated vehicles, or submersibles. Uh, but, since, uh, but when you talk about scuba, it was considered to be too deep. Tysol said, we wanted to prove it could be done respectfully. The two packed, uh, picked a date, arranged a team, and uh, drove a small pickup truck from Florida to Michigan, taking turns sleeping on the oxygen tanks in the trunk bed. Uh, they arrived in the Upper Peninsula. The weather gave them a window of one morning when the water was mill pond calm for the expedition. It took six minutes to descend and three hours to ascend from the shipwreck using trimix gas mixture. Between that, Tysol and Z spent a grand total of 15 minutes in the bottom with the two wrecks. Now, we talked about going down in six minutes, and a few weeks ago, there was something about when you're breathing helium, which I assume is one of the gases in their trimix, that that, that the quicker you go down can actually cause problems. So you wonder if they if that was known at that time? Or if they just got lucky? Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about this a little bit. Uh, there's a book called uh, Shipwreck Hunter, mm-hmm. called Deep, Dark, Deadly in the Great Lakes, and... Um, I recollect reading about the group that dove on the Fitzgerald, but I do not remember them saying they had permits in the book, and it was pretty much kept a secret, so I'm not sure how the people would have complained about it since they didn't publicize it immediately at the time. So I was just going back through the book real quick to see if I could find reference to see if it's the same group that we're talking about here. It says, due to the strict timetable, Tysol and Z didn't get much time as they would have liked to explore the shipwreck. Every minute in the bottom at that depth lengthens the need to decompress on the ascent. The duo had a finite amount of breathable gas mixture, and Lake Superior allows little room for air. Just before leaving, Tysol reached out and grasped the port side rail with two neoprene-gloved hands. It was a reverent moment filled with emotion, he said. For the first time in 20 years, living hands touched the ship. It was connected. It wasn't the disrespect, he says. Two people risked their lives to pay respect to those 29 men. Afterward, a dive team visited the Great Lakes Museum in Whitefish Point. They planned a full week of diving, but the weather closed in, and the one dive was all that Mother Nature allowed. Family members who were already pushing the Kitty government for a ban on expeditions of wreck criticized Tysol and Z in the weeks following the dive. A few months prior, the ship's bell had been removed during an expedition blessed by the family members who wanted a single, tangible, symbolic memory on land. In 1994, an expedition led by Fred Shannon captured a video of a well-preserved body on the wreck. Shannon intended to distribute the image, sparked outrage, and eventually a legislature banned photography of corpses on Michigan bottomlands. Tysol said the dive boat did not anchor the wreck, and the team went through the proper channels for a dive license required by Ontario Heritage Act. Subsequent amendments to the act have effectively banned diving on any kind of wreck without approval of Canadian government. 
Fitzgerald dive fuel debate over whether proper respect should be shown on shipwreck, whether divers shipwreck hunters likening the expedition to visiting a cemetery or others called it a matcha stunt done in poor taste. After the accomplishment became known, Fitzgerald's family members called Tysol. They were concerned his footage getting into the hands of the tabloid TV shows. Tysol stressed the dive was not a publicity stunt and promised to hold on to the footage, which has never been released despite numerous requests. I think they understood the spirit of the dive after that, he said. Tysol, a military veteran diver, so he's been part of a restricted expedition before, including sanctioned dive in the USS Arizona, a Navy battleship that sunk in 1941, Japanese Pearl Harbor with a thousand men inside. He's helped recover bodies and dove on sites where shipmates died. Okay, the book that I was talking about that has this also interview with them, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of difference between this and that. Uh, one of the items he's got here in the book, let me find it real quick again. Uh, I just had it. It's talking about the permits they said they had. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, they didn't because there wasn't any required. And they didn't tell anybody they were going to do it. Well, and then, like you said, how did the family get upset about it if they didn't tell anybody and didn't know? Right. And he said, we kept it a secret because you never know when things might fall apart. In the preceding summer, a flap over the Fitzgerald had arisen. Family members of Fitzgerald's crew were incensed to learn photos had been taken of the people on the sunken ship. How that got out, I don't know. Well, uh, did, did they say who took the photos? Was it these two or somebody else? It didn't, he, they're not referencing photos. I mean, they didn't have a lot of time down there to, to be, you know, messing around. No. Uh, oh, darn it. I just read that one little part. Oh. Uh, at a later writing, he said that Sullivan had gotten a government permit for the dive. He allowed as that was wrong. At the time, Sullivan said no law or regulation had been set regarding the Fitzgerald, which lies in Canadian waters. No permission was needed. It was, in fact, it was not until 2006, more than 11 years later, that Canada passed a law specifically restricting access to the Fitzgerald. So, so who do you think? Do you think that the author of this article actually contacted him for these quotes, or is these something that every year when we come up on this date they bring out and re-edit notes they've had from before? Not sure. Because I'm, I'm trying to look in, and I don't say like we talked to him last week or this is up done. It's more they're trying to explain a story that's related to the wreck. So it could be, you know, misinterpreted notes or edits or something that's being included here. But along that line, as a little plug, I mean, I don't write the book. I don't get any credit. But Shepard Hunter is a very good book to read. If you're interested in, like, uh, some of the old guys who've been diving out here forever, meaning the Great Lakes, this is a book to get because it talks about the wreck hunters. And David Trotter is probably about the most well-known. Matter of fact, I think he just found one this month or, or late last month, another one. So Trotter is one of the big dudes, and this book gives you a lot of history on him, as well as a lot of, you know, like Dick Grace and a few of the other giants. So if you like this guy's article talking about the Fitzgerald, you're going to really love this book. Well, let's, let's see. Which one should we try next? Want to take him in sequence? Scuba diving scientist? Yeah, if you want to do that one. Sure. Shark teeth and guns. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's like what we're looking for when we're when we're diving at least in yeah. South Carolina. Well, and and uh, Jake found one uh, last week. Okay, uh, okay, I have to ask. Gun. He found a gun. Gun. Well, I saw the the thing on the gun, and I guess I didn't get a chance to ask. But was that a an actual you know projectile firing gun? Well, or? he's 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 made him a little uh, electrifying device that helps yes. clean materials. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got one object cleaning now, then he's going to put the gun in there and see how it cleans up so he can really determine if it's, uh, you know, a pellet gun or not. Use a pellet gun, you can tell pretty easily. Yeah. So he's going to try to uh, get it so you can at least see what it is and is it a real or not. So we'll have that in a future broadcast. Yeah, that'll be interesting. So let's see. This is uh, scuba divers, scientists find shark teeth and guns. What's that? Sep, sep, whoop, sep, kolga? It's it, when somebody says it, we'll probably go. Ah, that's obvious. Uh, he, uh, they said that the he said glistening on the pebble-strewn bottom where the from the lighting it's deep blue to black. Teeth are everywhere you look. The largest are nearly two inches long. Some so tiny you can barely pick them up. This particular spot, perhaps 20 feet long, sits below a river waterfall near Evergreen, Alabama. It ranks as one of the most fossil-rich places in the United States. It's pretty insanely good. You probably can collect something in the order of 500 shark teeth in an hour. Martin Becker, a paleontologist from William uh, Patterson University in New Jersey, 
bobbing at the river's edge in scuba gear. That rate's up there 30 years of shark tooth collecting with some of the best spots I've ever been. Teeth date to the what, uh, Exene era? I would just say they attacked 40 Neocene. million years. Yeah, about 40 million years ago. <laughs> uh, that was before I was born, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. The time when much of Alabama was beneath an ancient ocean, the shark teeth along with teeth from other types of fish were trapped in marine sediments that fell from the mouth of animals. The creatures died and sank to the seafloor entombed for millennia. These ancient seafloor sediments, the teeth end up on the bottom of the modern river as rushing current eats away at the rock-like layer of marine clay where, deposit, where they were deposited 40 million years ago. All I know is I've just bookmarked this, and I will be looking for this place, and I'll <laughs> find the next summer. <laughs> You're gonna, it's, it's on your list. Well, yeah. you know you know the luck we had down there in Charleston. Oh, yeah. We did. We did. I mean, this guy tell me 500 an hour. Yeah, and, he, and this is somebody, and this is somebody who's who's done it. I mean, this is his job. He, he goes and looks and collects. So I found mackerel teeth, a boxfish, barracuda, bonefish, tarpon, stingray teeth. Also found horn coral. Uh, he held up a, something that looked like a jigsaw blade. He said this little spike thing is a pectoral fin out of a catfish. Says is the spot is unique and rare to find such a concentration of teeth below the waterfall. Most likely means a current is eroding an ancient lag deposit or spot where physical forces like waves or river currents push the fossils together in a thick layer. He pointed sandbars and river where gravel collects in spots where modern beaches where shells pile up as examples of lag deposits. Does you ever see those black tip sharp migrations along Florida, Alabama? You look at the aerial footage of that, those sharks are within 100 yards of the beach. The functional tooth position of the shark is lost every 7 to 10 days, and they're on order of 30 tooth files per shark, so I'm thinking they're hanging around like that, losing teeth like crazy. Each shark is losing 30 teeth a week for its entire life. I think if you went snorkeling out there after that aggregation, you'd probably get a bunch of teeth. Of course, you'd probably want to make sure the migration passed you before you swam out in the middle of those sharks. So you got that, Mac? Uh, you got that, Mark? Yes, sir, you, but your buttons. I am definitely going to be checking this thing out. I'm looking at the photos. I'm not, oh, the, what's, oh, so that's the gun he found? I don't, uh, I don't, I don't see any photo. I'm sorry, a video. Yeah, it's a third photo on the top of the website. Uh, oh, well. uh, I, I'm not picturing that sharks were packing that. I think that might be a little newer than the shark teeth. Yeah, he said something about fell out of it. Oh, yeah, that's not even got rust on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fell out of, out of a canoe, he said. Yeah, I'd love to find something like that. Darn. Yeah, that's still usable. I wonder if that was in the bag, meaning the uh, holster, <laughs> in the left hand. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, Looks like it, doesn't it? It's got a snap on it. Looks like it was in a holster. Yeah, it could have been. That means he'll be able, he could find the owner of that one. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be awful nice of him if he should do that. That stingray barb is interesting looking. I love Did you take a look at the picture of the gravel on the bottom? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know we're going there. <laughs> Is there any doubt? Now watch oh, it. Cool. Watch it be one of those places that we can't get to. Hey, solid boat. We can get to it. I hope we can. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll make sure we got a bondsman all set up before we go. You see the visibility? Yeah. Yeah. How can you not find something that has visibility? Well, if you can see everything, certainly. Uh, how deep is he? Did it say? Well, these guys are walking on the shoreline, taking scoops up and finding the teeth. So we're going to find the premier stuff in the middle. Yeah. I wonder I what mean, kind of... I one tooth he's showing is pretty good size. That's a couple of inches. I wonder what type of current there is. Uh, in, in, in waist-deep water, not much. Well, I'm just wondering if uh, that might be the reason why there's so many teeth there. If the current's pretty brisk, then anything that you know works its way upstream and falls over the falls might be collecting down there. You know, uh, that... Looking at the picture of him underwater, and I don't see the indications. And Oh, there's another nice picture. Keep going through. Uh, this guy's just in a snorkel mask with a, a bucket with a, just like the gold dredge when you're panning, mm -hmm. handing up to the guy. So that's about six foot of water. That looks like a very gentle current going through where he's at. Okay. Now we've got to look this place up. That's all there is to it. Road trip. Well, I got excited real quick, didn't I? Those are some nice ones. Those are like pristine teeth. They've not been messed with. All right. Yeah, and they're diving with scuba gear, so they're not. Some are. There's a couple of pictures where they're not. Wow, those are beautiful teeth. Well, uh, we will be looking that up a little bit. And we'll tell everybody else when we're going. Not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll okay. tell everybody. Well, come on, if you're pleased with us a lot, guys. You may have to. Oh, that was beautiful. And uh, last week was the Dima show. 
The Diving Equipment Manufacturers Association show for 2015 in Orlando. Uh, and one of the things I guess DEMA brought is, and I haven't, I wonder if this is the same pool that they, they bring all over, but they're saying it's the largest movable scuba diving pool. Oh, is that in the world? Of course, I don't picture there being a lot of mobile scuba diving pools. Or deep pools. Now, how deep is this one? I don't know. That's why I was curious. And the reason I asked that, I went to a boat show in Chicago, I think it was two years, maybe three years ago, mm-hmm. and it was long enough they had water skiing in it. <laughs> oh, was it this one? I don't know. That's why when you said the largest, it wasn't deep, but it was long. Yeah. Well, they've had the, and I don't know, maybe they've got more than one, but they've had the Be a Diver pool at the uh, Our World Underwater before. And I remember looking at it going, oh, that's respectable. It's enough where you can get some gear on, get down, look around. I think they had a uh, a side where people from outside the pool could see in there. But they don't yeah, I, I probably can find one of my old pictures from that, but... Uh, yeah, and it wasn't obviously with a boat. It was like a winch tow on both ends. Yeah. But it was big enough that the guys could do solemn, go off a little ramp and come back down. And that was impressive considering they had to fill that up, you know, mm-hmm. when they put it in place. Now, maybe that one, they they might not be calling that one mobile if it's um, a matter they constructed something permanent. Well, no, it, it wasn't permanent. I mean, it's in the convention center. Right, but it wasn't, you know, does a mobile, do you have to go to two of them? I mean, if you build something, use it, and then tear it right back down, does that make it a mobile? That that just becomes temporary, I guess. Well, or if you can put it back up again someplace else. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look too deep, but like you said, all you need is deep enough to lay on the bottom in five or six feet of water. Yeah. I took took my first uh, dive in a health club pool, and that one, the deepest spot in the pool was probably five and a half feet deep, and that was more than enough to get hooked. Yeah, when they were doing the uh, rebreather familiarizations just to try them on, that was in a pool that was nine feet, I think. Now, now here's a test for you, Grant. Uh, I think Grant. Uh, Mac. I don't know if you're going to say, was that, was that uh, Gramps? Not Gramps. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, maybe after, if you look at the girl, you may know because my, my kids are, and they would watch her on the Disney Channel. But uh, she is currently, uh, she's been a, an actress on kids TV shows. And she has recently over the last few years been a recording artist. Uh, but she has decided since she has observed that uh, the Britain's Duchess, Catherine has learned to scuba dive that she now wants to get her scuba diving license. Well, the Duchess was 33 and she's what? 22, 22. She don't look 22 in that photo. She, she looks like she's one of those people who uh, look young looking, I guess would, would be the term. Yeah. Yeah, because she looks like about 16 in there, doesn't she? 15? Yeah. But, yep, she's going for a scuba diving lesson. So hopefully, maybe this is a sign of things changing where we're getting a little bit more interest in, in diving. You know, I, I really didn't cover it when the, the royals get in the water and do anything like that. But, you know, if a little bit of celebrity publicity gets people interested in diving, then that's good. Yeah, the only problem that appears is, and, and we know it costs money to do the class. Mm-hmm. And in her position, she's got the money. The oh, Duchess yeah. has the money. Yeah. But I think like other ones, like I think we covered Taylor Swift, another recording artist that she she's a certified diver. So there's a lot of people who are diving, but diving, and, and I won't say mis- incorrectly been portrayed this way, but a lot of people associate diving with a thing that you do when you go to a tropical location. Yeah. You take a trip. While you're down there, you do the resort course down there. You blow a little bubble, see some fancy fish, and then you're done and you call yourself a scuba diver. Yeah. So somewhere around that needs to go from being an item on a bucket list that you check off and you never do again to where it is something that you do and participate in regularly. And a lot has to be is got to have a dive buddy and join a dive club, and that makes a big difference and helps maintain that fix. Yeah, well, you know, keeps you wanting to do it. Well, let's uh, lead up that article to this to the first one in my list up there, or last one, depending on, on how you look. Uh, another thing that came from DEMA is that they had, uh, this was recorded by Deeper, uh, reported by DeeperBlue.com, is that DEMA was holding seminar on this particular topic of attracting young diving professionals. So what they're doing is they're trying to attract professionals to the industry. So uh, one of the ideas is that if you have young professionals, you have young divers. The audience of uh, 100 dive industry professionals were quick to start firing questions and commentary at the panel. The common theme expressed by one audience member who pointed out the lack of financial support and pay for divers who try to break the business side of the sport. Unlike other sports, scuba diving is one of the only ones where the apprenticeship track to become an instructor rarely 
provides a realistic paycheck. Most anecdotal comments agree that many dive masters association instructors typically receive little, if any, pay. And we've heard that from many people. Unless you are the dive shop owner or instructor, and, well, owner and instructor, yep. there's really not much chance. You know, your your dive masters, at least around here, tend to be primarily assistants to help the instructor, and then the instructor gets paid. But none, neither the instructor or the dive master in the northern half of the United States can really make a living doing that. Okay, thank you for calling. Robert George. Okay. So hang on, I'll transfer the phone to another location. If you're wondering where I went, sorry about that, I had to step out. No problem. Where did we leave off? The common themes was to try and get pay for professionals. You know, I was curious about that. And, uh, you know, for dive classes, I've helped. And most of the people who help are not dive masters, and they're not assistant instructors, mm-hmm. at least around here. And I have seen some uh, groups actually, actually bring you up from not diving all the way through to how to own and operate a dive shop. Now, once they have that, if you don't have the backing to start your own, you know, I can see what their point is. But normally when you get that, what are you going to do? You're going to go someplace with an established dive shop, right? Yeah. Because to me is you can go through that 90-day wonder course, not to be too derogatory, Mm -hmm. and you've got the training, but you don't have any experience other than the training. Well, there's there's other things to be experienced for besides just the, the, the ability to teach skills. There's a lot of personal people train, you know, the, the ability to motivate people and to spot challenges that people have in learning and adapt to your process. I mean, teachers, I think teachers in general would be pretty insulted if you thought that in 90 days you could, you go from not knowing something to being an expert and knowing how to teach people on a life or death situation. Yeah, I was looking at the other article that says, in addition to pay disparity, need for financial incentive, which we pretty much can agree with, many speakers talk about the on developing mentorship programs with the operators with increased front office exposure and levels of responsibility, okay, if the people are interested in that kind of, you know, I want to progress up. How many people do you know that actually get into it from the, from the aspect of being a professional? Well, the, the thing is, what they're doing is, is, the way the dive industry is taught is done this, and this is purely my opinion, is that it's almost like a pyramid scheme. You know, it's like some network marketing type thing where the idea is that everybody who comes into it to learn to dive, you've got to go and pitch that this is a potential career. And I don't know if that's a reaction just because they're not having that there's a shortage of instructors who are willing to to, to do it for whatever they can get. So they, they that they feel like they have to try and convert everybody into a professional. You know, my my thought is is if you got more people diving, then the other parts the ranks would fill up. When when you got your training, did you feel they were trying to get you to do that? Be a professional, be a scuba, whatever. Oh yeah, oh yeah, there was. I did. Oh, that was that was part of the the class. They're doing the pitch. They've got uh, you know the brochures out there. You know, they're already. You haven't even. You're only halfway through the the first course, and they've already tried to get you into the next four or five courses. You know. Just don't do the regular course. Yeah, go do the advanced. Go do the specialty. Well, you do all the specialty, then you go master diver, then you can have dive master. And so, yeah, there's definitely a, a feeling of pressure. And then the other thing was the trip. You know, what they wanted you to do is they wanted you to do all the classroom work and then go on their $2,000 trip and then get your open water down in a resort. And in at some point, you know, if, you, if you're a young professional and you've got a family, you can't feel so sorry, honey. I'm going to go run to Fiji. <laughs> and uh, get my certification. See you later. Hmm. Uh, the other article or the other comment said, there was much talk regarding how the scuba industry has failed to keep up with other extreme or adventure sports like snowboarding or surfing with no young superstars as the public face of the industry and that we have not branded scuba as a cool and exciting basic thing to do. Uh, extreme and adventure, I, I don't know. Is scuba extreme to you? Well, here's the thing. I, they're they're partially right, but I don't think they're right in the same way they think they are. The, it's not so much that it's extreme and that they promoted the extreme sport. It's that there's, that, is that there's a media that flows 
around these other activities. You can you, you sit at home on Saturday in the winter, you turn on one of the sports channels, and there's going to be snowboarding there you can watch. Yeah. You don't do that with scuba diving. There's not some extreme scuba diving. We're not watching some scuba diver thrash through waterfalls and, and do stuff. I mean, you might have Shark Week, which is barely scuba diving. It's, you know, neoprene in a tank uh, uh, or a cage. So you really... It's not, you don't have that whole media following. And if you look at some of these other activities, and not all of them, uh, but some of them actually have, you have a movie component. Uh, you know, you have an industry that's funding placements into popular media to get it attractive. And maybe they have, and we don't know, but I think one of one of the, I don't know if it was this James Bond movie or a previous one that had some diving in again. Uh, you've got, you know, you've got, uh, oh, the, you got the director for Avatar, uh, He's got a, his his next Avatar movie is going to be underwater, so maybe that will help. Uh, but for it to be extreme or adventure, you have to show it being extreme or adventure, and you then you just don't see it. Well, uh, you figure out the the snowboarding, surfing, BMX bike, cross country. Generally, it's a closed course, a, a small item, a three minute time, and you can see a lot of activity. You can grade that activity, and that's where you, you know you earn your prizes, your money. You don't do that in school. Yeah, they've had that one show that they've been trying for years with the ultimate scuba diver challenge. But what would you have to what would you have to do? What sport? What would you do to make diving extreme like that way that you would want to televise it? There's nothing because again, they're looking for bite-sized snippets that you can be starting and finishing in two or three minutes. Look like downhill skiing. You know, so yeah. it's all that stuff is quick, 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 quick. And at the end of it I can give you a defined you did good, you screwed up you fell down, broke your leg, or whatever. You don't do that in scuba. Because scuba to me is fun, number one. The exciting part is when you press your own limits to go past open, basic open water to advance slowly and progressively. You know, and then you do items like shipwreck or night or ice diving or river diving. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it, to me, that's still cool and it's exciting, but it's not something you're going to see on television because the setup time is different. The, the time involved in doing an exercise is totally different. So, Well, and it's really the feeling of you doing it and realizing that there, that anything you've seen on TV or video pales to what the activity is on its own. Yeah, because like even in, in, in skydiving, the event that you're looking at is less than two minutes unless you're doing a wingsuit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I can, I can show you something really quick. You get out, you got anywhere from a minute to if you're, if you're uh, using a wingsuit to a three minutes. See, see, Again, it's bite-sized. I can, I can condense it. I can sell it. I can market it. Well, the only thing with skydiving for me as a non-skydiver that I would say is, is like maybe some of the formations that they do. But to watch somebody jump off a plane, out of a plane, go all the way down to the bottom and pull a chute, to me is not exciting. I wouldn't watch it. No, but what's exciting is if it's, I shouldn't say exciting for that, but it's competition if you're trying to hit the disc. So all you're going to do is you're going to watch the people come in and how close do they get to the disc in competition. So, again, it's a timely item that you can, you know, you can say, hey, I'm looking at this guy for 30 seconds. I'm on to the next one, 30 seconds. Well, do we need to do like a, uh, uh, you know, like they, they've got these uh, sports shows where you go around the world and, and do things. Maybe we do the same thing where you, you get a team of six or eight divers and you pick a new location each week for these same divers to go to and you have different challenges. Yeah. For example, well, search, uh, hunt and search. You, know, you, you know, I've got, we're going to throw a token in the water, and you find it. It's ten thousand dollars. Yeah, that might be exciting. Yeah, that's a bunch of piranhas going after. <laughs> you, you know what that reminds me of? What? It's a really dumb thing we did in, in Boy Scouts. <laughs> oh, was that, you that the Scouts? You're in this big auditorium, all right? Uh huh. They turn off all the freaking lights, and they throw a silver dollar in the middle of the floor and say, "Go for it." <laughs> You talk about a bloody item, you learn real quick that if you get it, do not say, I've got it. <laughs> you know, there's something else that we had happen here at the uh, youth fair. But they're always trying to bring new things into the grandstand to make some, some money. And they did a rodeo. And, you know, we, we have some people who do rodeos, but that's not a, really a big thing in Michigan. You know, it's, it's a very niche thing. And anybody does it really travels to do it. It doesn't come local. So come to the fair. They had a rodeo, and I guess between the events to fill time, they brought, it was like a calf or something out there. So they had everybody in the stands, you know, all the boys and girls who were between ages 8 and 11 
come out there, and then I think they put like a $50 bill on the tail of this calf, and that calf proceeded to just decimate all these kids. It was like a slaughter. <laughs> it's like it's like catch the pig. Yeah, it's it's you know the animal rights people are going to be saying that that was mean to the animal. That animal was destroyed the kids. It should be the other way around. It should be, you know, uh, social services coming around checking on what were you thinking? And, and there were parents who were upset. I remember the the first aid uh, building at the fair that night was pretty well packed. <laughs> A lot of bruises and and uh, bloody noses going on that night. But yeah, scuba diving. We, we, you know, would you have to? Would you do it that way? I just can't think of any activity you're going to do underwater that's going to have people look at you for three minutes. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of people uh, screaming at their uh, radio saying what they what they think could happen. Well, maybe they could tell us. Yeah. So send it to us. Comments, especially with photos. Uh, the show at scubaobsessed.com. <laughs> Okay, I, I think I better go before I get in trouble. Let's go to the uh, to the next one. Uh, Open ROV co-founder discusses the future of underwater exploration. So the Open ROV just completed their second Kickstarter fundraiser, which was funded, and it wasn't just funded by a little bit. Uh, they they did very well, and they even broke a lot of the rules that many people say you have to do. Like they didn't really even bother with stretch goals. They just said, "Hey, you want one, buy one." So they used it more like a a cart. And uh, what he says is the future of underwater. He says people have been exploring from the surface for as long as people have been getting in the ocean, but getting in the ocean is still tricky business. Until a very recent time, we had a technology that could take us more than as deep as you can hold your breath. So he says it's hard to believe that only 5% of oceans have been explored thus far. Ultimately, people are curious. I think that for some reason over the past 100 years, we got this idea that curiosity is limited to a few scientists, a few explorers. I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of people have ideas and dreams and get excited about the unknown, and we've just built the tool. So they're referring to their ROV, and they think that that is going to be the future. And what they're referring to is you know, citizen scientists, where you get out there and you observe and you learn on your own. And I think the other part of that is that you have to have some sort of scientific community who's willing to shepherd or be involved and take these, these bits of data that the citizen scientists are putting together. Because they've got, you look at how many uh, of these ROVs that were sold, there's a lot of people with those. What are they looking for with their ROVs? I mean, for, for you and me, for me, I see the usage to survey a wreck that's already known. Mm-hmm. I see a, a, a vessel that if I know I dropped something in a specific location, I might be able to find it if it's big enough. And I look at it as, like, I'm going out grubbing. I'm, I don't know what's down there. I'm going out and look, but I'm not necessarily looking for vegetation, fish, clams, even though you see them and you know what's going on. What kind of scientific exploration are people going to do with, with the drones? I think what they're looking at is that you are going to – the first thing – here, let me try and mute this damn tab. The first thing that they're trying to do is just say that if you're – I don't know what – if it wasn't my hobby, I wouldn't be spending $1,000 to get one of these. But you've got one. I'm thinking that somebody's going to go, first is going to be look and see what's down there. So you're going to pick locations and just see. So it's going to be up to uh, different groups, you know, like a, say a dive club like us or a local university to say, you know, if you've got one of these, here's things that we could use help in. You know, do you want to go out? every weekend for the next eight weekends and look for X, Y, or Z, like we've got the algae. Would they be willing on on, on doing that or counting fish? Uh, I think it's going to be rare. I mean, you have to be pretty motivated to find a shipwreck. But just by pure number of people in the water, you're going to, you're going to have more eyes and maybe somebody comes across the shipwreck. You know, if you don't look, you can't find. Well, same applies to metal detecting. I can spend $600 for a good metal detector that gives me an opportunity to really find something. But the key item is I have to get out there and do it a lot to break even with what I find to pay for the device. I see I, that the same as this. If you don't use it, and again, one, I'm using it because what I might find something that is a value to help me pay for my device. When you're doing this underwater and if you're doing vegetation, blah, blah, what are you doing that's going to give you a payback? It keeps you interested. I think it's got to be the enjoyment of it. I can't believe that anybody is buying one of these thinking they're going to make money on it. Well, when you say enjoyment, I'm going to be looking at muddy bottom fish, making sure I don't tangle my line, and how how many hours are you going to spend doing that? 
until you get like, this doesn't seem like a lot of fun, you know, because you're going to need, are you going to be in the bottom? Or are you going to be, you know, five foot off the bottom, 10 foot? And again, visibility of where you're using them? I, I don't know. I can't, I couldn't answer that question. For me, where this fits in is something that's maybe too deep for me to dive. Yeah. Well, I want to go down and check before I go and take the time to dive. So if we're out mowing the lawn in Lake Michigan and then something comes up, you know, we come back, take another pass, verify that there's a hit there, and then you drop this in the water, head right down to it, and you go, yeah, there's something there. Let's take a look. And right. then you then you suit up and go in. And that That's would be, absolutely correct. I see that for the same reason. And then the other thing for us, what I would like for one of these, is it's a, a mobile camera platform. You know, you have the divers down there diving, and I would like to have some nice video you know, when you're when you're a diver, that's that it, you could have a surface person get yes. video shots, and maybe you do have a diver down there with video, but then you've got two surface people who are getting some wide shots, and then we use that and we cut it together and we've got a video. So that to me would be another purpose for it. But well, we're not. That could be your safety not safety diver, but that could be your buddy as you're diving. Yeah, they can see what's going on with you. Well, and not I mean, necessarily help. But and these are tethered, so you know we've talked about you know GPS and other things. There's you you could communicate much more easily with a device but like this, either by signal, by hand signs, hand signals, or you could even have some sort of electrical or optical way of communicating over short distances. So, yeah, you're, it could be a safety item. You could have a speaker on this. You could have a speaker wired into this, and that could be the recall mechanism we've talked about. Yeah. It could go chirp or buzz or strobe. Yeah, you could even have some, say somebody in the surface saw something you didn't, they could drive this over and, and kind of signal that, hey, take a look at what I'm at. Yeah. So for us, I, I think I think it would make sense for us. But when they do 500, 600 of these, is there that is there that many of us who are interested? I bet there is because you've got guys looking for wrecks just like us. I can I can name 100 right here. Oh, yeah. And that's just my soul. 600 to 1,000, absolutely, I wouldn't even touch it. And if I were in the Bahamas, in Florida, where I could use it a lot, mm-hmm. oh, absolutely. Yeah. But again, that's a diver using it as another tool yeah. to meet something of his objective. Yeah. So I don't know if that's what they're referring to here or not. Yep. All I need is one like that with a little manipulator on it or a hand and a basket so I can pick something up and put it in the basket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's our next, our next project. Yeah. I know that I had considered putting my bed in, but they were sold out about the time we tried. And then we have the mysterious glowing eel that's been caught by divers. The scuba divers in the Caribbean were surprised and they captured pictures of mysterious green eel. Uh, they caught two green eels. Uh, this eel, and it's a, some Latin name, which you'll have to find the article if you want to know what it is, is known to be shy and reclusive. Analysis showed that the eels had an entirely newfound class of fluorescent protein that needed uh, bilirubin, which is a pigment that's formed in the liver to grow. These fluorescent proteins help shape the eel's evolution may, and may help researchers developing new techniques in the lab. That's pretty interesting. Well, animals glow by absorbing the blue light in the ocean, re-emitting it at a longer, lower energy wavelength like orange or green or red. Huh. So, so it's, it's more like a biological version. Have you ever seen those... Uh, uh, we used to have them in drafting class, a little tri- the triangle for drawn lines, and most of the time they were like clear plexiglass or something. And then somebody, somebody yeah. would have the fluorescent ones, and it would absorb the light and the top, and then it would broadcast the light out in the orange spectrum out the edges, and it would just glow. Huh. Uh, well, I like what they said. They said the hypothesis is they glow for mating, avoiding a predator, or attracting prey. That makes sense. If you're going to spend effort in, in doing that, there has to be a benefit to it. Well, generally, it's the medical aspect. I think that's also what you're looking at. Yeah, well, they're trying to figure out, well, we've got a protein that's doing something that we didn't anticipate. How else can that be used, or is there a natural benefit to to having that? But uh, you know, other than Halloween, walking around with glowing skin, I'm not thinking right now what the benefit is. Well, so it started as a brain protein, then became this fluorescent protein in muscle. So it, it's quite interesting. Again, they said for every disease that's out there, there's a solution for it in nature. And that's why that's so critical we don't screw up and kill all the unique animal and vegetable life that we have here on the planet. Well, that's one of the things. You start going after some of these old medicine men, and while they might not understand exactly the reasons why things worked, in many cases they did have something that worked. Yeah. My my problem with something like that is my memory's not good enough. I'd be 
you know, I'd be looking for the thing that got rid of the headache and it'd be the thing that makes your bottom choke or something. Yeah, they're talking about here though the the size of one of these is like two human fingers. Okay. And or I think what is it, nine point eight was the largest one. I kept looking at the picture thinking they looked like a moray. Yeah, they do have that same look, but the and they even like have that little nub out their nose. Uh, wow, that's kind of tiny. They're small, relatively speaking. So neat. Well, I think that does it for scuba in the news. Uh, so we get to that part of the show. We talk about last week's dives. My wife on Sunday was like, are you going to go diving today? I'm like, no. <laughs> I was not at all ready to go diving. I thought you were ever ready. I thought you were one of those minute men. I was, but I... I I, I got I borrowed your tank and I still got to fill that up with there. I'm I cannot. My problem is that my busy work week is so obscenely busy that I have no way of preparing to be able to dive. You know, I could go dive. I just don't have any gas half the time. And then it does take a little bit of preparation. As much as I'd like to say stuff's in the car, uh, it does take a little bit of effort, especially this time of year. Undergarments uh, tend to increase in need. It's really nice having a suit dryer. When you're doing multiple dives in a week. Yes. Now, I, that's one thing I have liked about the, the dry suit has been just many times before I even get home, the dry suit's dry again. Even on the inside? Yeah. I've got a slight leak in my left knee, but either way, sometimes you sweat. It's yeah. still not a bad idea to uh, flip that baby upside down, put some PVC tubes in it, pump a little air through it. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. You know, you don't want you don't want to get a, like a little musty smell going or, or something. But I've, I've been... Compared to neoprene, it's 100 times quicker drying. As long as you don't flood it to begin with, yeah. And that's, you know, knock on wood, I've been very fortunate is that uh, my suit doesn't leak yet. Keep the, the zipper pretty well waxed up and it in good condition. Well, even with a leak, I say warm because it's, it's a slow leak, warms up. The undies catch it, warm it up, and uh, I'm still toasty. Yeah. Relatively speaking. Now, you mentioned that Jake had gotten the water. Had anybody else gotten in this last week? Well, let's see. I got out on Sunday looking for that locomotive in Dayton Lake with uh, Kevin and Mark Perrin out of the Herald Palladium, mm-hmm. trying to put that rumor to, to rest Yeah. and reconfirm the area that if, if it's there, it's either been sunk in the mud about 20 feet or it's not there. And I, I'm of a strong belief that it ain't there. Thank you. You're not going to leave a locomotive five foot from the track back in those days. You're going to salvage everything you possibly can. Now, did they have a newspaper article that says it happened? No. no. I've got I've got research well, back 200 years in that area, including the, the lake itself and how it's shrank. And then I got pictures of back in the 1840s, 1850s, up through the 1900s when it was a double track and how it ran over the lake in two different places. And if it falls, it falls to the side. It's not going to bounce 20 feet out. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's right there in shore, and it ain't there. Now, you got metal out there, but that's from the railroad plates. There's maybe a couple of wheels out there and an axle from one of the old boxcars that was uh, on a siding. But there is no, no, no locomotive out there with a smokestack and a bell and a whistle. Now, what lake was this? Dayton Lake. Dayton. Because I've heard the same thing about Madron Lake. That Madron Lake has a locomotive. My wife, really? No, I hadn't heard that one. Well, the thing is, I think that people just use that, that locomotive story. It ha- I'm sure there is a lake within 100 miles of here that had a locomotive at one time fall into it. Now, did somebody pick it up? Most likely. You'd, like you said, you don't leave something like that. And even if you might not be able to recover all of it, you're going to try and get up what you can. You know, boilers serve many lives. And boilers the most expensive part of uh, steam power. Almost every lake I know has the rumor of a Model T lost in there. Yep. Two horses that were when they were looking and doing ice harvesting, uh-huh. but the horses and or the sled or the whatever got fallen into the lake, took the river of the lake. Those two, almost every lake I've heard about. Well, the horses fell through because almost all the lakes in this area did have ice houses around them. Yeah. Well, in, in, I have yet to find the bones of a horse or their tackle. Yeah, that, uh, but uh, yeah, you're you're exactly right because uh, you know one of the industries in Michigan, which we saw there at the museum, was how big ice harvesting was. We were, we were exporting ice all over the world for a number of years before refrigeration. Uh, so I think it it's, it it very well could happen. 
I, I have found the saw blades. I have found the the ice spuds and picks and yep, pike. I found those too. Ain't found no horses. I hadn't found any carriages. You know, sleds. Well, well the thing with a horse, I mean, if, if we're going to go in in myth bust, is horses float. You you I think you are pretty challenged to sink a horse even in icy water. So and you, somebody might say, well, you got ice on the sled. Well, ice floats. The wagon is going to float. I mean, there's well, the sled. The sled will probably sink. That's going to be heavy wood. You don't think that that would be that the wood would be buoyant? I mean, ships. It, yeah, well, ships also probably had ballast and cargo. But we're talking that the car, the, you know, the ice. I think is going to come off. I, you know, I guess there's going to be situations. But I'm I'm just picturing that. You know, unless you're just a cruel person, uh, and they just went down so quick, you, you'd be able to get them out of attack. Now they might not live. They might drown there and. And maybe you with a nice bud, you push the dead horse under the water because you don't want to have to drag him a quarter mile to the edge of the lake. But you're probably taking the tack. That's you know, that's quite a bit of money. Yeah. And, and generally what you find when somebody says a car, it's 50-gallon drums that you really shouldn't be messing with. Yeah. You know? well, and the thing is, that was one of my – my father-in-law had said that, he, had, that he, he, had, he was a scuba diver, and he had dove – on Singer Lake with a Model T, and he can point right out where he says it is. But you're right. It's over there where those drums are. Right, because I've been there looking for that. Um, I've scanned it. Ain't seen it. Well, it, could this be... but I, you're not going to see it with the scanner, but I've been down there, and there's freaking 50-gallon drums or 30-gallon drums rusted all the heck out there. Well, let, let's take it another way. Uh, how was visibility on Singer Lake in the 70s? <laughs> right. So if I'm in Singer Lake and I'm out doing whatever floating around and I see metal rims, maybe it's the edge of barrels that have rusted out. You know, maybe I, I, I picture that's the wheels of a Model T and maybe there just conveniently happens to be a, a jar or a lantern next by. Maybe I put all this together and decide that's a Model T. Okay, in the river yeah. where we're diving for, for models? Yes. You, you know the car I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that one we, we found. That one's if you can't see that, do you know that's a car? No. Well, in fact, in fact I, I was probably on that four or five times, and I think I had to convince you that it was a Model T because I, 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 there, there was more of a basket, it felt more of a basket. And then I went and messed around and moved around and went, hey, wait a minute. And then, then one weekend, for some reason, it became uncovered. Yeah, somehow. <clears throat> somehow. Yeah, the, the currents with the river, how they work. They're freaky, yes. Yeah, but that one is a Model T, so we have... <laughs> of, of of all the irony, but that's not where you would expect to find a Model T. Yeah, and it doesn't have the axles, and it doesn't have the engine. Yeah, you do you think that was jet? Well, that was a junkyard there. Yes. So I think it just might have been in the junkyard, and it got exposed. Now, yep. so you guys did not find the engine. No, we did not find it. Um, uh, all I know is when you walk in that shallow part in the back, you need to clean your suit because it's strictly hydrogen sulfide come bubbling out of us oh, every time you move yeah. your leg. It ain't pretty. It smells. It's not healthy. Is that the one where they put the bubblers in the lake? No, 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 no. Okay. So that was Sunday. Um, Monday, we went looking up north for the porcupine. I went with Kevin. Uh, yes. He was trying to see if we could locate it before Veterans Day, which is the 11th, because it was uh, in part of the War of 1812 on Lake Erie. Yes. And its resting place is up in Grand Haven near uh, Spring Lake. So actually, it's in the river between Spring Lake and the Lake Michigan. So we went out there and did some searching, and we know where it isn't, and we know where <laughs> it said it was, and it ain't that place. Uh, we did find another wreck that is, uh, as soon as I get the uh, the scan from them, I'll send that to you. Oh, my. Interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting. It's not, a, it's not one you want to dive there because the biz sucks, and it's got metal all in it, but it's it's shallow and it goes from like 10 feet to boom it's 24 foot hmm. so there's some there's some nice wrecks there or a wreck there that's it's known don't know what you know the name of it but uh definitely something worth diving on but you got to be careful you don't get trapped in it oh is it the entanglement hazard yeah it's got steel oh bars and stuff across it so if you swim you had no viz and you're carrying a flag and you suddenly get ta- you know tangled up in it. it's like okay Where'd my tagline go? It's one of those if you abandon the line and if you get snagged, get out of your gear and come to the surface. Yeah. But it was interesting. Then uh, we got we got two dives in in that area. Then I went down to another area near the bridge and wanted to dive there. Uh, visibility in the shallows was a foot maybe, 
and the deeper you went, the better the biz got. And I did oh. take light, and nothing major. Tons and I mean iron and odds and ends, and it looked like uh, small railroad car wheels. Really, lots of scrap iron. Um, was it was it uh, like a, a a mill or something there? Actually, yes, in one area. Because a lot of times on your docks, you would run a like a a trolley car type of. Yes, absolutely. So I found wheels like that. You found electrical cables that you were sort of at odds when you were pulling on. Yeah, you could. <laughs> there was a whole stairway down there, the staircase. Uh, so, yeah, if the visibility were better, it would be wonderful to play there. But you basically went slowly and cautiously. and So that's one of those places you almost need to get some buy-in from the community and do a trash cleanup day. Well, uh you better have your barge to haul the crap out because it was that much. But you got to be careful where you're at because it's like we had the boat and you dove between the boat and the shoreline. Uh, there's hardly any traffic. We did have three boats go by when we were down. Okay. One when he was down, a big boat. I mean, a very nice size craft went by. But you know, we we were anchored. He had a flag, and you'd have to go around the boat to get to him, and that would have been in the shallows or shallower. Okay. And we did fly the alpha flag on the boat also. Nice. But. Uh, that was a nice dive. And that was a full, excuse me, it was a full day, though. And then today, um, the 4 o'clock dive, uh, Sarah got some very nice milks with uh, three or four-digit phone numbers on the bottle. Oh. They are. So that those would be later bottles, wouldn't they? Well, you figure, what, two or three digits? So you're still talking an old bottle. Well, yeah, but you're probably talking 40s then, wouldn't you say, with the for the three or four digits? Yeah, probably, now that you say that. Yeah. Because that would have been, it's between the time frame where, because my son and I, about two hours ago, were talking about this, is you had to, where you would, you, you picked up the handset and you turned the ringer and then the, the operator answered. And then it was oh. the, the combination of uh, the operator and the tone, and well, not tones, but the dial. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, let's see, what else did she get? Uh, it was a one pint, City Dairy, Niles, Michigan, and uh, the number was 136 or 138R. Oh, you can't read phone numbers on the air. People are going to prank call them. Yeah, I had a lot to luck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm looking at the overview bottles, and there's a nice blue cobalt blue. A looks like an old, old orange crush bottle. Uh, looks like perfume bottle, you know, the brass caps with the um, ceramic insert. Yes. So Jake didn't say what he found, so I am curious now. And he doesn't talk about what he found. Must be something good. Doesn't want us to know about, you know. Well, he told you about the gun, so I'm trying to think of what he'd have found that he couldn't tell you about. Money, gold. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm getting at. You know, easily disposable items. Yeah. Oh. Well, it sounds like some excellent finds. Well, you saw they got something planned. They're trying to figure out if you want to do Spring Lake, Gull Lake, or Lake 16 this Sunday. Oh, this Sunday again. Yes. Bob and them are trying to organize the dive for Sunday. Oh, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. I'm I, I'm thinking this weekend. I'm I know Saturday's out for me. Sunday, yeah. It, I couldn't do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I finally went to the doctor on Wednesday, and he said I'm cleared to go diving. <laughs> so, so I, that's good. <laughs> oh, yeah. After after you've gone uh, Sunday and Monday. Yeah, and, and last yeah. Thursday and a few other times, but yeah, he said I'm cleared to that. <laughs> Yeah, I, he's probably reading your blog post and just said, I oh, forget about it. Uh, well, he just told me not to jump out of any airplanes until at least the 21st of December. So what's the 21st of December got going That's on? so many months after the surgery. Oh, okay. I thought maybe you had already had a date planned. And he was well, I do have <laughs> He said, not before that date, please. Okay. Uh, well, that's good. Well, so key item is if anybody's interested, take a look at the club site. That keeps you posted on what we're doing. Um, I will say, though, kudos to the gentleman we had online tonight uh, with the Wheaton Diver. Mm-hmm. I spoke to him a little bit, and uh, we'll call him Harvey because that's his name. And they're doing their club is pretty nice. He gave me the club name. I looked it up. Very, very nice. Very active. Uh, any club that you can have that has diving instructors will teach courses. And I'm talking nitrox, deep diving, tech diving. That's a saleable feature for any club. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're out there doing they dive on December 31st and January 1st. And you know what they're diving for is oysters, food. Oh, food diving. Yeah, he was out diving yesterday. Well, let me see what he said here. Uh, water temperature will be about 42 degrees and, you know, January 1st. 
which is still warmer than ours. Uh, let's see what else he said. Uh, he said there'll be eight people for the New Year's Eve dive. He said in 2013, they had 57 people on the other side of the same river diving. Nice. River, brackish water. Uh, they've had occasional bull sharks. It's like when you got zero to seven foot of visibility in a bull shark, eh, ain't too <laughs> comfortable with that. No, that's where it just depends. It's where the... If you if you're diving with others, you just have to throw. I I find a couple pounds of beef in their catch bag, uh, I and I feel fine. I don't feel like I'm have a problem diving. Yeah, all I do is find them smaller than me, slower than me, and got a gimpy leg. If something bumps you bad, you just sort of cut their leg a little bit and then you swim away from them. Well, that kind of explains the questionnaire. I didn't understand those questions. <laughs> anyway, he said he had uh, he dove Saturday, got six dozen tasty oysters. Now, when he says he's going after oysters, is it just for personal use or does it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're talking Maryland. He said the area they're diving was, um, he said it had seven, zero to seven, max depth was 24 feet, 60 degrees, mostly brackish. He said salty enough for oysters. Um, they go for blue crabs, he, which he said he didn't see any, and gobies and sponges. Now, is that a potential item? For us in Lake in, in the Great Lakes now, that clams seem to be coming back. I don't think so. I, I don't know if they're even, you know, edible. I'm not guessing that you could probably eat them. Well, bottom feeders usually collect what's on the bottom. Yeah. Still got a lot of cadmium and lead and arsenic and things like that. Yeah, so. we're we're in the industrial part of the United States, so we had a hundred years of heavy industry in many of these rivers. And fertilizers. Yeah, I. I my my office is within a, a thousand yards of a EPA Superfund site, so which is also on Hickory Creek. I don't know if you knew that. No, I did not. Yeah, there's is a chain link area there along Hickory Creek that is monitored with wells uh, in a regular interval. And there, I understand at some point in the future it may be cleaned up, but I think right now they're doing the cap and don't touch, a la Love Creek uh, Love Canal. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, anyway, if you get a chance, Sunday is the next. Uh, okay. that, it's still going to be the Thursday, Thursday, which is the 19th. I will not be around for basically the rest of the month. Yeah, and, and I think we said earlier in the show there will not be a podcast next week because I'm traveling. Uh, and then we'll, we're planning on one for Thanksgiving day here in the United States in the evening, and so we'll, we'll shoot for that one. We have about a 50% hit on that recording uh, i think we'll make it and then we have our annual turkey dive where's the turkey dive going to be this year well hopefully we'll find out at the dive meeting that'll that, be the 28th is that this tuesday no that'll be the 20 oh yeah uh, dive, oh yeah i gotta get the freaking newsletter out is it That's three, uh, i need to do that tomorrow <laughs> but yes it'll be the 28th more than likely it'll be the river unless the storm has started up real bad so you're thinking there in benton harbor well I, i'm saying we'll find out it'll be there or perhaps uh, the Niles, which makes sense because that's where everybody's been diving on Thursdays. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, I think I prefer Niles myself. Now, people are comfortable and in Miramont, that, uh, the dock helps you put your gear on, so it's sort of convenient. Yeah, I think I kind of like Miramont. I, I need to hit that next, probably. Yeah. And uh, I'm, at the meeting, they should be solidifying where the New Year's dive is going to be? Yes. Yeah, I, I, we've had a few people throw their, their name in the ring for location, so... Well, basically, it looks like Kevin's area. Uh, I would suggest Singer Lake and or uh, Global Basin, which we have dove. Yes, so all all the uh, those are good spots. <laughs> yep. Well, it, it minimizes a lot of travel at two o'clock in the morning if we go. Yeah. If we go more local. Yeah, and it's, we don't have a hundred freeze. Whirlpool Basin would be fine for what we're doing. So I'm kind of hoping for a freeze, so we got a nice dive in. I get. I think that makes for just a better press. That just means you got to prep during the daytime, and it won't be Whirlpool Basin. Yeah. Yeah, we've had many years where I think the ice formed within a couple of days of New Year's. Yeah, or if, if, if nothing else, it's thin ice, but we still have to make a big hole somewhere. Yep. Well, let's see. we got anything to plug. You've got the website, which I am falling behind again on. I need to get myself. Well, I'm at, I'm up to the early October, so I'll finish that. And get us into November because already we got stuff in November. Yeah. So yeah, we've got uh, mudclub.scubaobsessed.com, also the Scuba Obsessed website, www.scubaobsessed.com, 
and then uh, our Facebook page. Uh, been getting quite a few people visiting that. And on Twitter, you can follow us at ScubaObsessed. If you have feedback or comments, you can send them to the show at ScubaObsessed.com. And we love those five-star reviews on iTunes. You can listen to us on the WRVO radio network, RenoViolaOutdoors.com. Listen to us and other fine outdoor programs. So if you like fishing, hunting, anything outside, there's probably something for you. Yeah, I think we got 172 members of the Facebook club. For, uh, on the Mud Club site, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what and that's a closed site, so if you want to yeah. get in there, uh, you have to request. And my tip is, if you want to be approved, is when we is have something that we can see on your profile that shows that you're a diver. Because if I don't think that you're a diver or interested in it, then I'm not approving them. I don't know about you, Mac. No, I don't. And uh, the same thing if you're a member of 35 different groups. Normally yeah. we don't because that normally is a spammer, uh, a place that just wants information to send other literature, yeah. which we do not abide by. Yeah, and even if you get in the club, we do have restrictions on posting until you've got four or five posts, and we see that you're not spamming us on your next Fiji trip. Then uh, we open it up, and then you get to participate. So how it works otherwise is you put the post in, we look at it, and go, yeah, that's okay. And that takes us sometimes up to half a day to approve and. Out it goes. Uh, let's see. I think that's it. And we're, wow, we're getting to that time of the show, aren't we? I'm ready. Let's see. No, I got a joke, but I think we may have done it. Well, go for it. Go for it. Okay. It, it's 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 a uh, okay. So here we go. Scuba diver goes in the office and he says, "Doctor, everything hurts when I touch it." He says, mm, "Let me see. Touch your arm. Does that hurt?" And he goes, "Ah, oh, yes, it does, doctor. Now touch your knee. Does that hurt as well?" Ouch. Yeah, that hurts too. Now touch your chest. How's that? It hurts as much, Doctor. Just a thought. Your finger's broken. And he wasn't even blind. <laughs> did, did, did we do that one? I can't remember. I've heard that one before. I still like it, though. Yeah. It's one of the basic things when you go to a doctor. Is How many things do people do? I'm getting to that age where there's, not, there's less things I should be doing. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Nowadays, everybody's always younger than me, and they look like kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see that now. You know, you, it's when you get into a group, and the leaders are parents of kids that are the same age as my kids, and I'm still ten years older than the parents. <laughs> That's when I feel old. It's like, how did this happen? I don't know. Sometimes I feel when I go to the doc. And he looks you over and he finds out what you're doing. And it's like, well, hell, if he can go diving, he must be okay. <laughs> yeah, like, like a Jim Schultz in his, uh, his uh, test exercise, he says, you know, I, I think I need a stress test. He says, you're, you've lived a stress test. Well, I think on that note, uh, go out there and get wet. And stay safe, people. Yeah. I'm hoping we weren't just talking into the air and nothing was being recorded. I hope so. It was a good presentation. Yeah, it was good. I just wish we had the better audio. I've got uh, another system I'm putting together that I'll have ready within two weeks, I think. Well, I'm going to leave you be. It's just about 11, and it's been a full day. I actually got the Y of zero today.